Hello, and welcome to the Fidelity ETF Exchange, powered by Fidelity Connects, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. In this episode of the Fidelity ETF Exchange, host Etienne Janka Bouchard welcomes reoccurring guest Andre Bruno to the show. Andre is director of ETFs at Fidelity Canada. Today, our panel breaks down all the notable ETF industry trends of the past quarter. As both equity and fixed income markets rebounded in Q1 of 2023 with some strong performance, ETF flows ensued. As of the end of March, there were $10.6 billion of net inflows into the Canadian ETF industry. International equities outpaced U.S. equities by more than $1.5 billion, while cash alternative ETFs remained popular with another $2.7 billion inflows. All of this and more today, enjoy. Today's podcast was recorded on April 19th, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy, or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Fidelity ETF Exchange. I'm your host, Etienne Jean-Cabouchard, aka EJB, and I'm very happy that everybody's back listening to our episode. Thank you all for joining us. Uh, this is our quarterly Canadian ETF industry recap, where we're going to talk about flows, we're going to talk about performance of various markets, uh, the impact that that may have on portfolios of Canadian investors. And to do that, I have a great recurring guest joining us, Director of ETFs at Fidelity Investments Canada, Andre Bruno. Andre, how's it going? I'm doing well, EJB. Thank you for having me once again. How are you doing? I am doing very, very, very well. Been on the road quite a bit this first quarter, meeting uh, investors, meeting advisors, and it's really been great to get out, uh, back out on the road, if you will, on the streets, um, and getting some insights on you know things that have worked and things that haven't worked over the past year. And I think I'm really excited to, well, I, I am really excited to pick your brain on some of those topics that we'll that we'll address uh, shortly. But first, just uh, you know, as we always do, quick recap of our last couple episodes, and just to indicate to everyone that these are all available. Uh, you know, as recorded podcasts on your favorite podcast app or on uh, fidelity.ca. In our last episode, had the chance to sit down with Fidelity portfolio strategist Cameron Chamberlain, in which we talked about asset allocation. We also talked about uh, some of the do's and don'ts, things to potentially avoid or risks uh, when building out model portfolios, whether you're an investor or advisor. I think that could be quite an interesting episode, but uh, definitely you can catch up uh, at a later time. Now, for today, I guess where we can start is just a little recap of you know what's happened in the markets over the past, uh, let's call it three and a half months. Uh, we're April 19th as of the day of recording. The S&P TSX is up uh, and, and you know for all these numbers I'm going to be quoting is Canadian dollars up 7.7%. The Nasdaq's up 15%. S&P 500, seven and a half. If you look at small caps, Russell 2000, 1.2%. Iffy markets, so international developed at around 10.2, so solid rebound there also. 
Bonds are back in positive territory with the FTSE Canada Universe Bond Index at two and a half. Uh, global bonds are up, high yields up. I mean, so far, it's been a pretty pretty good start to the year and a very nice uh, change of pace, if you will, from a very difficult 2022. Is there anything that stuck out to you, Andre, with regards to some of the performance that we've seen out of financial markets or different asset classes that you, know, that, that you found interesting so far to start this year? I think one thing you left out, I think commodities are even uh, looking somewhat positive on the year. I know energy in Q1 was down, but it's 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 rebound in April here, uh, which has been uh, which has been quite interesting. Probably not what central banks want to see, you know, from an inflation story perspective. But, you know, as people remember, you know, China's kind of come back online. They removed a lot of their uh, restrictions, I think, late in late in 2022, early in uh, 2023 there. So certainly a demand pickup from a commodity perspective there that I'm sure is placing some upward pressure on uh, overall commodity prices. But uh, to be perfectly honest, when we're, when we're taking a look at fixed income, um, you know, personally, I'm not terribly surprised by by the returns. I know you and I talked about it on podcast last year, talking about, you know, the fixed income trade and how, you know, we thought that was something to look at and that's something that would probably work in 2023, given, you know, given, given where the forecasts were for where central banks were going to go in 2023. And I think largely, you know, to contrast 2023 with 2022 is, you know, I think we're getting what we expected at central banks last year. You know, if you rewind back to 2021 and late in 2021, you know, the, the amount of hikes that folks were forecasting for whether it's the you know BOC or, or the U.S. Fed was uh, uh, a lot lower than what we actually got in 2022. So uh, 2023 from a central bank perspective anyway is kind of playing out how we expect so far. Um, that being said, you know, there's still some uncertainties out there. Obviously, inflation in Canada, we got a print yesterday, 4.3%. So we're certainly heading in the right direction. Uh, you know, I think we're going to hit those BOC targets of, I think they they forecast that we're going to get somewhere around 3% by year end, and then ideally back to 2% in 2024. Uh, US uh, still a little bit hotter there. Um, you know, I think the the Fed's having a bit of a tougher time. There there was some kind of hawkish talk out of, I believe, uh, one, of, one of the FOMC members earlier this week, just talking about how inflation's still too too high. So uh, still some risk there from the US side from from the potential for higher interest rates. Um, When you take a look at equities, you know, I think, you know, generally speaking, you know, it it hasn't necessarily been like great news for equities this year, but they are kind of up across the board, uh, regardless of kind of where you're looking. Uh, Probably more a function of just kind of a bounce off the lows uh, relative to last year. Obviously, earnings haven't been you know, super positive. We've we've gotten lower revisions to analyst expectations for this year. So generally, generally speaking, that's not terribly positive. Obviously, the the R word has been looming over everyone. It feels like all year. Uh, the R word being recession. Um, so obviously, a lot of folks uh, considering that risk for 2023. Uh, that being said, I'm sure folks are a lot happier with uh, the the first quarter of list year after uh, the 2022 we just had. No, absolutely. I think it, it definitely does come of a little bit as a as a relief. And I think January in particular, right when we started the year, it really was like a, a sigh of relief. You saw, you know, we saw big bounce in growth stocks, which were obviously very negatively impacted from, if you will, their equity duration last year as rates were rising. And uh, you saw certain pockets like, for example, we mentioned, uh, you know, another one, I guess that I'd add on from a common standpoint that, that happened in the first quarter. And that was pretty, I guess, bullish just it's kind of counterintuitive, right? Because you saw things like, you know, uh, the issues with Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, you got had Credit Suisse, you had Deutsche Bank. Uh, it seems maybe like uh, some alarms going off. But in reality, what happened, you, you also saw on the flip side of that markets adapting and basically saying, 
oh, maybe we expect actually rate cuts now. So almost, you know, a full flip-flop, if you will, on or a 180 uh, on what was uh, originally expected, which was, you know, a few more hikes this year and then probably hold uh, up until the end of the year. And now, uh, you know, about three to four cuts priced in in the U.S. up until the end of the year. So maybe a little ahead of ourselves, like you said, given the fact if you look on the equity component also, earnings have been, you know, revised a little bit lower, but, um, you know, price prices have moved up. So, you know, multiples haven't necessarily come down either. So we'll talk about valuations a little bit more later and, and the impact on on the flows of certain areas like international. But I guess as a as a as a start before we do get into specifics, uh, you know, it has been a really strong start to the year. From a flow standpoint for the Canadian ETF industry, we're talking at, as of the end of March, about $10.6 billion in net new assets. To put that in perspective, last year total for 2022, which was uh, actually a really solid year, right? For th around $35 billion in net new assets. And I know I've mentioned this in the past three episodes, so bear with me, everyone. But, um, you know, that was the third best year, I think, in history for the Canadian ETF industry. And we're already on track to, to surpass that now with... Uh, with the 10.6 we've seen so far. And it's really come in a variety of places with equities at around 4.4 billion, uh, bonds at around 5.5, and then a, a little bit into multi-asset as well as some alternative stuff. Uh, so just all around a really good start to the year. In the first place, you know, the first question I guess I'll have for you is around uh, the hottest category last year, I think, from a relative perspective, which was uh, cash alternative ETFs or HISA ETFs, basically uh, ETFs that take uh, an investor's money and put it into high interest savings accounts. Uh, we've seen another $2.7 billion in Q1 of 2023 with fixed income markets rebounding like you had mentioned. You would have expected maybe that to start to flow through more to traditional bond mandates, but there's still a huge appetite for those money market type strategies, right? So very little to no duration and, and some nice little yield pickup. So what's your take on that, you know, that category? Yeah, I think it's a couple things. So I think number one, it's, I think a lot of folks still have a bad taste in their mouth from 2021 20, and 22. Uh, 2021 wasn't a great year for fixed income, obviously, uh, relative to 2022, it looks like it was a great year. But uh, last year was obviously, um, you know, double digits uh, down on many fixed income indices. Um, you know, it's the first time I think, whether you're looking at the Canada Ag or US Ag indices, it was the first time they've they've, uh, they've clocked in uh, two negative years. Um, so that's never happened for kind of a kind of a bad data point. Um, so, you know, the, the one part is, is, you know, I think people just had bad taste in their mouth, got really hurt by duration. And number two is just the, the absolute level of, of yields on the short end of the curve, right? Overnight rates are, are, are super, super attractive. You know, folks are getting, you know, uh, you know, cash rates, you know, north of 4% with, uh, again, no duration risk, you know, little to no credit risk, um, so again, I, I think it's just folks saying, you know what, I did, you know, negative double digits on fixed income last year. I can basically guarantee myself, you know, four to five percent in cash. Um, let's just put our money there and 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 not worry about it. Um, what I'll say is I think we are seeing a little bit of a rotation into duration this year. I'd say last year, for the most part, it was all let's focus on the short end of the curve, get those short end rates. You saw a little bit at the end of 22 where, where folks were rotating into kind of longer duration products. 
Uh, obviously, again, with this potential recession looming over us, obviously a lot of folks, you know, as we know, in those recessionary environments when, you know, equities are, are getting hit and, you know, high yield credits are getting hit, you know, duration is your friend in those environments. And I, and I think investors are taking note of that and are putting some insurance back into their portfolios. That's a, that's a great point, actually, because if you dig you know a little bit deeper into the fixed income component, you have started to see that that rotation. So short short term bond mandates were negative, close to about a billion, and long term bond mandates were positive, one point four billion. So you're definitely slowly seeing that uh, you know addition to your duration in the portfolio. And like you said, you know that's one of the best diversifiers to that equity component in your portfolio. So when you remove duration completely, all of a sudden there's nothing to offset those heavy loss years uh, in recessionary periods. Because I mean, last year wasn't great for equities either and bonds didn't do well. So the correlations were all out of whack. But in a, you know, in a regular environment where, you know, let's say rates are a little bit less volatile, that's, that's kind of what you should be looking for. And uh, to your other point, you know, with regards to high yield, um, you know, that was a category that was very popular coming out of the COVID-19 pandemic because you just saw a lot of companies kind of reset their balance sheet, right? You know, push back their maturity wall and, um, you know, I guess reduce the, their their cost of debt. But spreads stayed really tight, even as we saw kind of this late cycle approach. Now you've started to see spreads widen a little bit with everything that's happened in the financial sector. Uh, any comments with regards to that? Is that something that you would say is maybe a, a little bit of a hidden risk because the yields look attractive, right? You're getting maybe 9%, right? Or approximately say on the on the US high yield index, but could it be a little bit of a, a trap right now? Yeah, I, I think something to consider is I, I think from a default risk perspective, um, you know, obviously going to a recession default risk, you know, increases, uh, let's not kid ourselves. Uh, I mean, the good news when you're looking at high yield, specifically around U.S. high yield, is a lot of the maturity, to your point, when a lot of people refinanced during COVID at, at low rates, um, you know, a lot of the maturities, we don't see a ton of maturities in 2023 and 2024, where you see a ton of maturities in the high yield space come up in 2025. So from a default risk perspective, um, you know, that looks good. That Obviously, that helps the default risk profile. On the other hand, what you still need to appreciate is if we do get into, again, a uh, a recessionary environment, you would likely see spreads widen in high yield. You know, even though there is that bit of a cushion from defaults, uh, given the the maturity walls kind of push out to twenty twenty five, there, you're, you're still going to get hurt from a from a from a capital loss perspective in your portfolio. And you know, you know, we're probably somewhere late in the cycle here, as as most people can can most likely agree. You know, historically speaking, the things that have worked late in the cycle with regards to fixed income is your duration. So think your U.S. Treasuries, your Canadian federal bonds, uh, your investment grades typically outperform in a uh, in a recessionary environment relative to to your high yield name. So, you know, I, I think I think people are cognizant of that, and I think that's why you're you're seeing people focus a little bit more on the the less risky side of the credit curve. Um, so, you know, not to say you shouldn't have any high yield at all, and I'm, I'm not trying to pe- scare people away from that, but just, you know, be cognizant of where we are in the credit cycle, where we are in the economic cycle, um, and, and, and kind of what to expect out of your fixed income when, if we do get a recessionary environment. Mm-hmm. That's great points. And, and, you know, actually, you know, to echo kind of those comments is you actually see that in, in, you know, in active managers portfolios, if you're, you know, if you look, say, based on where we are at Fidelity, some of our more popular mandates that are actively managed, our Global Core Plus Bond ETF and our Global Investment Grade Bond ETF have definitely taken a shift to, I guess the two main ones would be 
a bit more duration and a bit higher credit quality in general uh, with with the addition of more treasuries. So I think that that definitely makes sense. Uh, one question I get, and, and this I guess maybe we can move on to equities after, is um, you know with short term yields being so attractive still, uh, why not just take that and, and kind of run with it? Uh, and the answer that I've come up with, and I just want to see if if I'm in, I've got the right uh, I guess frame of mind here is reinvestment risk, right? So it's great to own short term, but what happens in one year if the yield if yield curves come down? Um, you know, I think that the idea that a lot of investors and advisors should look at is you know what happens down the road. You don't you shouldn't necessarily be planning around a very short term reality and think I want to invest for five ten years in the bond market. Is there anything you would add to that? Whereas um, you know, what are some of the risks of going very short term, basically? Yeah, I, I think that's a, you make a great point. Another thing to consider as well um, is, you know, think think about think about your duration. Um, let's let's just talk short term treasuries, for example, like mm-hmm. like let's say a two year buy a treasury that has a two year duration, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, you're yielding somewhere around four percent or, or wherever, wherever it is right right about now, maybe a little bit less. Um you know, in that recessionary environment, obviously central banks tend to cut interest rates. Let's say they cut interest rates by 100 basis points. You got a duration of two. You're going to be up two percent on your 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 shorter duration fixed income. Now let's contrast that on the uh, absolute opposite end of the yield curve and look at a 30 year treasury. Those have or a 30 year bond rather, uh, government bond. You know, those have a duration around 21. You know, let's say rates go down, you know, even if rates go down 25 basis points there, you're still going to outperform that short end. And and historically, in those recessionary environments, that's that's where you do see folks investing in that long end of the treasury curve, because it does provide that 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 insulation. And you do get that that large windfall from a capital appreciation perspective when rates, you know, uh, would likely move low in a recessionary environment. So that's something else to consider. And that's why folks do flock to that long end of the yield curve in times of distress. Uh, makes a lot of sense. No, absolutely. It's great. Great tidbits there. Um, let's move to equities. Uh, one of the things that I've found is the most, uh, not necessarily surprising, because I think there's a few things that go into this, but international equities. So that's, you know, even in, in, including emerging markets or excluding emerging markets, I'd say the the more developed side has actually received. So Europe, Japan, uh, Australia, for example, those areas have received a lot of flows year to date uh, from an ETF standpoint, around 1.4 billion big resurgence, you know, following last year. And on the flip side, U.S. equities for the first time in a very long time, actually in outflows of around 800 million so far year to date. And that's really also surprising, given it's about thirty. The you know the latter, the U.S. side is thirty four percent of all AUM. So, uh, what's your take on that? I mean, is it were we buying the dip here? Are we um, you know adding a, a region that's historically been a massive underweight in portfolios, right? Like for and, you, and you've worked also with with advisors and investors across the country. Like it is underweight for the most part if you compare it to say an MSCI world. Uh, you know, allocation for the for those regions. What would what would you be your take with with regards to that switch? Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's primarily a, a like a relative valuation play. Um, you know, when you're just taking a look at valuations in the United States and even Canada relative to kind of those uh, developed markets, whether you're looking at Asia or Europe, um, you know, 
from a re- relative valuation perspective, they're they're cheap relative to to North America. So I think it's primarily been been driven by that. I mean, if you take a look at the European economy, I don't think it's necessarily faring better or necessarily worse than than North America. So you know, my take is again that that relative valuation is is kind of probably the probably the leading reason why we're seeing kind of the flows go that way also re, you know and and again those flows are are showing up in the returns as well uh, as people allocate to more more uh, international equity exposure um, in terms of uh, you know where we are in the business cycle I'd say Europe is potentially a little bit behind us where we are but not not too far along um, you know obviously you know Switzerland had some concerns with their banking systems around the credit Swiss a little bit <laughs> credit Swiss uh, UBS merger there um, but that seems to have uh, that seems to have you know sorted itself out more or less with the uh, with the merger uh, so so that seems to have assuaged uh, any uh, investor concerns with regards to uh, banking sector contagion uh, in Europe Um but you know, it'll again. It'll be interesting to see. Uh, it'll, be, it'll be interesting to see moving forward. You know, I, again, I think the big question circulating is 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 around that recession. You know, is it going to be a global recession? Is it going to be soft landing here, and then six months later, it's going to be a soft landing in Europe? So, I think that's kind of the big bogey there uh, in terms of returns of of uh, North America relative to Europe. Um, you know, one one kind of little bit of an aside, but uh, something interesting about the UK is they're still they still have tremendously high inflation. <laughs> I think they're still. I think they're in double. I think it was ten or ten point one percent that the UK printed recently. Uh, so, so bit of an issue there. Uh, Europe's still still under a bit of you know inflation. Certainly running a little hotter there. So another risk for European equities is uh, the potential for the for the ECB to have to react a little bit more and and continue to hike rates. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's th- those are all very good points. And the valuation one definitely is is one that I think has been echoed for a little while and. You know, maybe now it's just gotten to a point where the gap is so wide that there should be some reversion to the mean, right? I think right now, uh, if you look at the IFI index, is at about a five PE discount to the U.S. While the average historically over the past fifteen years, call it uh, a little bit more than that, actually going back to two thousand, oh, almost twenty years, uh, the data that I had uh, is about two point four. Uh, so it's about double the size of the average discount. Um, Albeit, you know, it's been cheap for a little while. So what is it going to take for it to outperform? Maybe this is a, a short-term rebound, but there's some indications that we saw, I think, last year that a lot more bad things were priced in, uh, right? Like uh, everything that's gone on in, obviously, in, in Ukraine with, with the Russia invasion, that was a big negative, obviously, you know, big revisions to, to certain companies' earnings and things like that. And then maybe it wasn't as bad as some expected. Because if you look at... Uh, the forward expected uh, growth in EPS, uh, you know, so going, looking out 12 months, what the EPS growth is expected is actually higher in, in Europe right now than it is in uh, the US, which is a little bit surprising. And I think that's just because it was revised down more last year. Uh, now, once again, we'll see how all this plays out. But, I'd, I, you know, it'd be interesting to see if this appetite, if you will, from investors and advisors continues uh, throughout the year, because we've seen these little pockets in the past. But it hasn't really been sustained, you know, really since there's been a lot of assets in ETS in Canada, because the last time uh, international developed markets outperformed the U.S. was pre-2008, 2009, pretty much with, ex- you know, very few exceptions, you know, like a couple years in 2016, for example, things like that. But um, anyways, interesting to to uh, to follow as we go through this year. All right, let's move on to, to sectors, um, you know, with everything that we saw uh, from a, a you know the you know mini banking crisis, if you will, 
uh, it actually <laughs> saw, or not force, but we saw a lot of buying the dip. Uh, financials ETFs, so those ETFs that are focused on that sector, saw massive inflows in March. Uh, 1.4 billion for that month alone. So not, I'm not even talking the whole quarter, uh, which in reality is pretty much everything that, that was there, but because uh, it was negative uh, to start the year in January, February. Massive buying there. Uh, we saw that in the US. We saw that in Canada. Is ETF investors just trying to buy the dip here. Is that pretty much the story or is there a long term thesis on financials that I don't really know about? <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I think people I think, you know, when the initial news started coming up that, you know, Silicon Valley Bank was was potentially going to go under. Um, and then obviously people started, you know, uh, you know, drawing lines to to other potential banks that uh, that could go down as well. I think, you know, there's probably a lot of folks who got flashbacks to 2008. So there was probably a you know an initial reaction to you know just sell financials across the board. Um, you know, I, I think those probably went down. Uh, you know, the initial reaction was that they traded lower, obviously. Um, but I think once the dust settled and people started thinking about it a little bit, they said, you know, there's there's some there's some banks here that you know solid balance sheets balance sheets are way better than they are in 2008. Uh, the regulators are jumping in to kind of contain the situation. Uh, so I th I think it created a buying opportunity for some folks, and 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 you know it's 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 evidenced by kind of the flows that we've seen go into uh, go into the banking uh, banking sector ETFs there. Um, you know what's interesting uh, moving forward is. You know, obviously, it'll be interesting to see how the financials shake out. Historically, higher interest rates have led, or led to a, an increase in net interest margin for the banks. Um, you know, obviously, some of the other concerns is obviously interest rates are moving higher. The Fed is taking liquidity out of the market. Um, so there's a question around loan books moving forward. Um, you know, there's there's some talks about how banks are, are de-risking their loan books a little bit, potentially not extending as much credit as they, they might have otherwise been doing, you know, going back several months. Um, so so obviously there's some questions about profitability moving forward. Um, I'm, I'm sure a lot of these banks and financials are also cognizant of the potential of recession over, over, uh, over the horizon as well. So mm -hmm. uh, that's certainly factoring in as well. That, that makes a lot of sense for sure. And I think, you know, like you said, the initial reaction was kind of just a broad based sell off. And then I think a lot of market participants were like, wait a second, this isn't necessarily systemic. Maybe not all these banks deserve to get sold off. So let me buy a big basket that doesn't include maybe some of those more at risk. And uh, let's let's move from there. And with regards to, like you mentioned, profitability and generally speaking for financials, higher rates tends to be good. Except when, if you think about it, the curve's inverted, right? Because they're borrowing the short term to lend to the long term. Not a not ideal concept uh, with time value of money. So we'll see how <laughs> we'll see how that shakes out. But uh, interesting to see, also definitely. And um, sector ETFs in general have actually been positive as a whole, right? So you actually saw the only one being negative is technology, uh, which is uh, you know about ten percent of the total, while financials is about forty percent. So it's the biggest category also receiving more flows. So it could just be a function of, you know, once again, kind of just buying that also, but it seems like that spiked obviously um, in March. Another tidbit that I had highlighted here, dividend strategies. And, you know, we often end up talking about factor ETFs on the show just because our lineup here at Fidelity is definitely, uh, you know, if you will, more focused on that. And we saw dividend strategies continue to do well in this environment, uh, albeit it's maybe a strategy that does better when bonds aren't paying as much, right? 
it seems like historically when bonds are offering, you know, say the Canadian aggregate bond index is giving us close to 4% uh, and a high dividend strategy is giving you five, why would you be taking on that much more risk, uh, having equity-like risk, if you will, owning that? It's up 709 million year to date. Is there something else under the hood here that, that could be driving those flows? Yeah. Other than that, we love dividends in Canada. <laughs> I think it's 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 probably, I mean, we, well, I was just going to say, we do love our, we love our <laughs> yields here in Canada, uh, yeah. for sure. Uh, it, 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 I think it's also could be a function of folks being, um, having a, a mild, you know, some amount of trepidation with regards to markets. You know, obviously there's still a lot of uncertainty out there. So I think people certainly like the the stability of, of a dividend yield and at least getting some sort of return on their equities. Um, I, I, I Again, I think it's more of folks just kind of taking a defensive stance. Obviously, those dividend paying companies are typically your your larger, larger cap companies. Your, you know, there, there's there's certainly some overlap with quality there as well. Um, so, so again, I, th- I think it's more just, you know, folks being a little bit defensive with their equity. And again, you know, you're making a point between equity and fixed income. You know, again, I think I think this is you know, why wouldn't you just buy more fixed income? I mean, again, if you think about the 60-40 and they're looking at their 60 and, you know, they're favoring the dividends there. So they're probably not making that conscious comparison between fixed income. Although I I totally understand your argument. Um, But uh, again, I think it's just, yeah, folks just just being a little bit defensive in their equity sleeves. Yeah, getting, getting paid to wait basically a little bit to see how this thing shakes out because as much as, you know, it seems like there's a, bull, a lot of bullish tailwinds for bonds, equities is kind of a maybe a stock picker's market a little bit more, right? Where there's some stuff that's been doing well and some things that just haven't really picked back up. And uh, given where valuations are, not everything's very attractive per se. So uh, definitely interesting to see that. Andre, I see we're already at around you know, tw- a bit more than 25 minutes. I got one last question for you and then we can, you know, have a final takeaways if you will. But the last category that caught my eye was the crypto space. Uh, so mostly composed of in Canada anyways, spot Bitcoin, spot Ethereum, ETFs, both prices of those cryptocurrencies have rebounded substantially year to date, uh, albeit it was a very big bear market last year. Uh, but flows you know, are down about 300 million. So basically nobody's really, you know, buying more of this stuff. So they, they actually held tight last year because we actually saw no outflows last year, which was also a surprise. But you haven't seen the flip either where people are buying this stuff again. Uh, have investors lost their interest? You know, what would it take to see a new leg up in terms of flows to that category? Yeah, I think I think it's it's a couple of things. So like, I think you know there's there's the the true believers that that stuck with it, uh, and then there's probably the folks who were more in the kind of the riding the wave camp, uh, so to speak. So I think a lot of the the riding the wave camp probably uh, you know you know sold sometime last year, um, and again to your point, this year we're up, but flows are kind of flat with regards to the space. So I I think again the people the true believers are still in it. Uh, it's certainly been you know a good year for the cryptos. I think they certainly uh, did rather well, specifically around kind of when we were concerned about the banking sector, you did see a bit of a bid for for crypto there, which was kind of interesting. So, you know, obviously a lot of folks who are true believers always mention that if anyone gets concerned about the banking system, the cryptos are going to be, you know, a proper hedge for that type of scenario. So it, it, it did play out to some degree. So uh, again, some of the true believers are probably happy to, to have seen that. Um, but with regards to the returns, I mean, um, you know, they they are kind of 
you know, kind of in line with gold returns as well, not on a, you know, percentage basis, obviously crypto has been up much more, but, um, you know, gold has been up this year as well. So uh, pro- probably also just a reflection of, 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 of somewhat of how people are, you know, concerned about the market moving forward and concerned about the economy moving forward. Um, but it's certainly for me, what the most interesting thing and kind of the question you were asking is, you know, will people dip back into crypto and when will they dip back into crypto? Mm-hmm. And I think that's the million dollar question. And I don't really have a good answer for that, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> so we don't really know what it's going to take for people to get really excited about crypto again. Maybe it's something breaking, uh, right? Like you said, like maybe it's, uh, but anyways, we'll see. Maybe if it's a prolonged uh, prolonged bull market, well, maybe it's just going to get people comfortable again and that, that there's there, there's another wave to ride because it definitely is a volatile asset class. It's not for everyone, um, albeit it does. Uh, you do have those true believers out there that have stuck, uh, stuck tight. Andre, this has been really awesome. Uh, just as we wrap up, is there any category that sticks out to you that you think could see an uptick from now until the end of the year? Uh, that we didn't really mention or maybe one that we mentioned that's going to accelerate even more um, anything that you want to leave us with yeah I think I think fixed income is going to continue to work this year um, I think uh, some indices up anywhere between you know three and a half to five percent somewhere around that range depending on what area of the fixed income market you're looking at so um, you know I know we had a lot of conversations last year about GICs versus fixed income and you know as far as the first quarter is concerned you know they're they're kind of getting close to outpacing GICs already in the first quarter I think that trade's going to continue to work I think you know on a balance of probabilities you know interest rates will stay you know probably flat to maybe you know sometime in 2024 some like you mentioned some some cuts are starting to get priced in there as well uh, so again, I still think that trade's going to work. Again, given all the uncertainty around as well, it's good to have that insurance in there in your portfolio. I know, I know, last year it did not act as as insurance, but again, in that recessionary environment, it it, it I, I would expect it to perform that insurance function. So uh, certainly, don't be scared of it. Certainly, if you don't have much fixed income there, or if you're in kind of only cash alternative, again, I still think it's a good time to to start taking a look at fixing again. And I know I think I've I've mentioned this uh, trade on like the last two or three podcasts that you had me on but uh you know i i, I, I still work. I, still, I still believe in it no absolutely you know it, it has played out and i think that's a really good words of wisdom you know if you did go overweight equities over the past couple of years uh it does seem like it's it's definitely not too late right to, to rebalance towards that asset class and and we'll likely see flows continue to go there so great points andre it's always a pleasure to have you on you're always welcome to come back on but you're a very busy man so i'm gonna let you go and i just want to thank everyone for listening in again we'll see you next time thanks for listening to the fidelity etf exchange powered by fidelity connects don't forget to follow fidelity canada on twitter and subscribe to fidelity connects on your podcast platform of choice and if you like what you're hearing please leave a five-star rating or review thanks again See you next time.